All right, this evening we begin a new study here in the Old Testament in the book of Joshua. If you want to turn with me to Joshua chapter 1. And as we come now to the book of Joshua, having finished Genesis through Deuteronomy, those first five books of the Bible, often referred to as the Pentateuch or the Law, uh, Joshua really kind of begins now what you almost want to say a... Uh, a, a new type of uh, Old Testament books. Sometimes people sort of categorize the Old Testament books uh, in such a way where the first five books are referred to as the law, uh, beginning then with Joshua now all the way through what would be the book of Esther. That's typically referred to as the historical books. And then after that, as you begin Job's and Job's, <laughs> Job and Psalms and Proverbs, you start what's called the poetic books. And then, of course, the latter half of the Old Testament, the, the prophetic books or the books of prophecy, the major and the minor prophets. So we now come to what is the first of the historical books of the Old Testament scripture, Joshua. Uh, and the first book you'll notice as well that we have in the Bible, interestingly enough, that actually is named after a person. Uh, we have other books from here going forward, you know, Samuel and Ruth and Isaiah and Jeremiah. But here's the first time in the Old Testament and the first time in the entire Bible that the Holy Spirit gives to us a book actually named after an individual, which, again, we've said before, the Bible says, lo, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. And, and we've talked before about how Jesus, it says, when he walked with those men on the uh, road to Emmaus, and as he spoke on occasion, he, he said to, the, to them that, you know, all the things in the law and the prophets, that those things testified of him, that the entirety of the word of God is ultimately a book intended to reveal what? A person to reveal the person of Jesus Christ, that we'd come into an awareness of who he is and our need of a relationship with him, that we would see more things about him. So whenever we're reading the Bible, we should always be reading the Bible with the heart of wanting to come away from it, knowing Jesus better, loving the Lord more, being closer to Jesus. Yes, there are truths, there are principles, there are warnings and prophecies and promises and all these things and stories that are historical and literal, great miracles, but yet all of these things are intended to point us to Jesus. And we never want to miss that. Uh, when we studied the Bible, again, remember Jesus, in a sense, rebuked the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the scribes, the priests in his day. We saw in John's gospel on Sunday morning because he said, you diligently search the scriptures. Again, uh, they would probably put most Calvary Chapel churches, in a sense, to shame. They diligently Search the scriptures. They were people that were deeply into Bible knowledge. They loved Bible study and Bible knowledge. And, uh, and much like you and I, and Jesus reproved them saying, you diligently search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And he said, you failed to see. He said that they testify of me. He says, you're missing the person behind the pages in all the intellectual academia and study you're missing the person behind the pages. And Jesus said, you, you won't come to me. In other words, their study of the scripture did not result in them coming to Jesus for a relationship, for salvation. And so whenever I study the Bible or you read the Bible or we have a Bible study, if the end result is we're not closer to Jesus at the end or we didn't gather something where we heard the Lord speak to us or we want to respond in some way because of the Lord or toward the Lord in our life, we've kind of missed the whole point. 
And when we begin to miss that point, we really, in a sense, are doing nothing other at all than what a college lecture would be, just listening to some individual spout off information and taking it down, jotting notes, whatever. I say all that to say this. There's the first time we find a Bible book named after a person. I don't think it's any coincidence that the Holy Spirit allows the first book to have a person's name in the Bible is the book of Joshua because Joshua, the name itself, it means Jehovah is salvation. Yahweh, Yeshua, Joshua, that name literally is a compound word which means Yahweh or Jehovah himself is salvation and of course the Greek variant of that Hebrew is Jesus. So how interesting that the very first time a book ends up named after an individual, the Holy Spirit, no coincidence whatsoever, more of a God incidence, not a coincidence. There's God incidences where God causes something to happen, uh, that the Holy Spirit lets it be the name Yahweh is salvation because that's who Jesus is and that's what Joshua's name actually means it was Hoshea and it was changed over to Joshua as he's referred to that way more often so uh, very interesting the book of Joshua we'll see covers about a 50 year time period historically and it is a book basically that gives to us the record of the conquest of the land that God promised to give to his people it's a record of the battles that Israel is going to fight now as they cross over the Jordan and they enter into this promised land that God has been assuring to them and reiterating to them ever since the time of Abraham that he was going to give to them this particular land as an inheritance that he was going to drive out the people within it because of their immorality and their evil and in direct conjunction with God's discipline or judgment of the immoral wicked people who had sunk to such a low level that God was as a gift now going to give this land flowing with milk and honey, this blessed, plentiful land to his people because God owns the whole world. The psalmist says that God declares the world is mine and everything in it and God wants to now give this land specifically to his chosen people, the Jews, to Israel to inherit it. And what we now have now as we've journeyed through the wilderness, the 40-year wandering because the first time they came and they didn't enter in, Moses has now died. And of course, as we've seen in prior studies, Joshua has been ordained, chosen by God as his successor. And he will now take the people through this book uh, in to actually take possession of the land. And it will be a record of the battles that they fight in faith and the miracles that God will do in conjunction with those battles that they fight in faith, the, the walls of Jericho coming down miraculously, God making the sun stand still on one occasion just so that his people could accomplish the victory they needed in a battle. And there will be great miracles. There'll be great faith expressed. They'll learn the difference between when they depend upon the Lord in a battle and when they don't depend upon the Lord in a battle and they try and do it in their own strength. And we'll see the victories that God is going to give to his people and allowing them to enter into what God intends for them to experience. And again, very important as we begin this new study now in the book of Joshua, a book of conquest, of victories, of battles that are fought and you know territory that is claimed that enemies once held and that now God's people claim that territory through their victory over those enemies. This book typologically, picture-wise, again, is a picture 
of us inheriting not a promised land. God gave Israel a physical land. God has promised to us as Christians, as the church, a promised life, a promised life in the spirit that God wants us to, in a sense, inherit and experience as a Christian. Again, and it's something given to us as a gift because of what Jesus, our Joshua, has done for us. And he says, look, this is a life I want to give to you now, Tony, a life of victory over sin, where sin shall no longer have dominion over you and that you'll be able to conquer enemies and things in your life that would be hindrances and obstacles. And you can come into this full, blessed life and experience of the spirit-filled life and the victory that God wants. So it's a picture of, of how to enter into the victorious Christian life by taking territory that God intends for us by our faith and our confidence in God's promise that he wants to give it to us and by us cooperatively acting upon that in obedience and, and fighting the battles with God's assistance and his power enabling us to overcome the enemies of our flesh and experience God's promised inheritance of the spirit-filled life, the fruitful Christian life. And, and let me just say, it, think of that as we're going through this. I may not draw out every application, but, but be reading it with that understanding that the Holy Spirit might give you those applications to your heart. And if we don't have time to mention each one, obviously we can't be overly thorough on occasion, but it's a beautiful example. And, and for this very reason, because it is a wonderful thing, listen, a wonderful thing when people experience deliverance out of the, the past life of bondage in Egypt, okay? That's what God's done for Israel so far. He, through a powerful work of salvation and deliverance under a, a mediator and a shepherd king, a shepherd leader, God's given them deliverance out of slavery and bondage and out of a life in Egypt, but that's not all that God had for them. Now that God's taken them out of that past life of bondage and slavery, what God wants his best ideal and what's even better is to then secondly enter into the promised life of all that God wants us to experience. Not to just say, well, great, praise the Lord, my sin's forgiven and I've been set free and, 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 and taken out of that old life of misery. Look, that's, that's good. But there's something even better. What's even better is entering then into, once you've been taken out of, entering into all of the fullness of God's promised life that he intends for us to experience in the full victorious life as a Christian in the spirit. And everything that God promises to us in the New Testament promises in Ephesians and Colossians and Galatians and Romans, these promises of what the victorious Christian life is to be like, how we overcome our enemies and take territory in the promised life of the Spirit that God wants to give to us. Now, a little bit about the man Joshua, because again, very interesting, this is a book of transition. It's a book now of a transitional season when Joshua takes over, of course, the leadership for Moses. Joshua, remember, was a man. We know a few things about him. First of all, he was a man who wholly followed the Lord. Remember when the spies went into the land and, and they came back and 10 gave a bad report, but Joshua and Caleb had faith and, and, and God's referred to Joshua multiple times as a man who wholly followed the Lord. So this is a man who was loyal to the Lord. He was devoted to the Lord, even when others would not be. This is one of the things that marked Joshua. 
Another thing that marked Joshua is Joshua, we know, was a man of faith. He was a man who had great confidence in God. Not confidence in himself, but he had confidence in the greatness of God and what God could do. When everyone else was doubting, Joshua said, no, the Lord will do it. The Lord can do it. He can, and he was a man who was a man of faith in God, who God was and what God was able to do. He had great confidence in the Lord. He was a man who had witnessed great works of the Lord. He started out as a slave back in Egypt. And from that point, keep in mind, him and Caleb are the two old guys at this point with the new generation. But he's lived out and survived all those who died in the wilderness because of his faith and his loyalty to the Lord. So this is a man who has witnessed the works of God in incredible ways. He saw the deliverance out of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea. He's seen manna come from heaven. He's seen water come out of the rocks. He's a man who's witnessed the, the power of God. And we know as well about Joshua is that Joshua was a man who was a humble servant. It's going to say that he was Moses' assistant in verse 1. And we know this is what Joshua was. For many, many years he served next to Moses. He served in obscurity. He served in humility. And he was just a faithful, servant-hearted man who was willing to fight the Lord's battles and now, in a sense, becomes the one who is prepared to be the successor to Moses. See, he does, he's going to show that he doesn't feel very prepared at all. You can tell in the chapter here, verse chapter 1, he's very nervous and uneasy. Understandably so. But I want to draw to your attention the reality of how God was preparing Joshua, this man who became the next incredible leader of, of God's people, which is a very, in a sense, high privilege and a huge responsibility. What were marks of this man's life? He was a man who wholly followed the Lord, a man devoted to the Lord. He was a man of faith and had confidence in God. He was a man who had experienced the power of God at work and had seen God work. And he was a man who was a humble servant. These are the marks of the thing that God says, that is the kind of man who I need to entrust this responsibility to. And God saw those things as, as, as a healthy foundation. And no doubt this was one of the reasons that Moses, when he passed away, was now succeeded by Joshua uh, as they go into the land. So look with me in verse 1 there. It tells us this. It says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, and that's such a beautiful title for Moses, the servant of the Lord. Here he was an incredible leader, but from God's perspective, the Holy Spirit calls him a servant of the Lord. And can I just say that is the highest title that anybody could ever receive the servant of the Lord. Because remember, that is going to be the thing that determines our eternal reward. Well done, thou good and faithful preacher. Right? Well done, thou good and faithful. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That, by the Holy Spirit's inference, indicates to us is the highest title that, that we would be a servant of of the Lord. And, and I want to tell you something. Moses was a leader, as you referred to as the servant of the Lord. And you want to know what leadership 101 is spiritually, not in the corporate world, but spiritually leadership. Do you want to know it's about more than anything else? It's about showing up early and it's about staying late and it's about being a servant. It's about being about a self-initiated servant. 
someone who recognizes ministry doesn't need to be told what to do, someone who sees ways and things that need to be served. And the greatest example of that is Jesus in John chapter 13. Nobody said, hey, somebody's feet need to be washed in this place. Jesus saw that the ministry needed to be done. He didn't need to draw attention to himself. He just went about doing what needed to be done. That's what he did. Listen, I served at Calvary Chapel of Vineland. I spent years pastoring in Calvary Chapel of York. It's it's the same thing here. There are times where people do this, that, or whatever. I walk around the sanctuary after Sunday morning service. There's snotty tissues on the floor. There are bulletins laying on the seats, water cups, this and that. Somehow everybody else misses that sometimes. That's ministry. That's ministry. Just being a servant. What needs to be done? I see something that needs to be done. You do it. You act upon it. Listen, that is the greatest qualification. Do you want the Lord to give you opportunities to serve, to be ready to embrace roles of leadership? Be a servant. Guys, we're supposed to be leaders in our homes. I don't know how to be a good leader. Be a servant. Be a servant. It's the best way to be a leader. (laughs) It takes way more of the Holy Spirit working in my life for me, I assure you, to get up and to help clean up the dishes or wash the dishes or do something so that my wife doesn't have to do it that matters to her that I could care less about. But I know it matters to her to just be a servant. And it takes way more of the filling of the Holy Spirit in my life to lead in that way, to be a servant in a humble way than it does for me to do all the other things that we often envision what it means to be a leader, to be a servant, a servant leader. That's Christian leadership. That was the leadership of Christ. It was the leadership of Moses, the leadership of Joshua. Later in the book, he's referred to as the servant of the Lord. But we're not going to finish chapter 1. I'm not even finishing verse 1, huh? (laughs) And it came to pass, it tells us, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, again, Moses' assistant. So, again, as we're going through chapter 1 here, keep in mind, as I said, it's a transitional time, but... A very difficult transitional time. Do you notice verse 1, the Holy Spirit wants to remind us, though we've already read it in Deuteronomy, uh, the end of the, the, the last chapter, this is at the death of Moses, after the death of Moses. So this is a time, again, this was a huge loss. I mean, 40 years, right, they had Moses as their leader. And he was a good, godly leader for 40 years. I mean, imagine having a good, solid, godly you know, leader, you know, in a church for 40 years and then him dying, the pastor, you know, passing away and, and a new leader needing to succeed and, and having to cope with that and, and process that. That's a difficult transition or, or a, you know, an incredible leader in government or whatever. And, and you become so familiar with that strength and the good quality leadership. So this is no doubt a very difficult time for the people. It's a difficult time for Joshua and yet again he was Moses' assistant so he spent all of that time serving side by side with Moses helping participating so this is a great personal loss for him and it's in the midst of this time of great personal loss it's in the midst of this time of major transition a succession of a new leader they're going to enter into a new land a new season I mean this is a major transitional point It's at this point that Joshua hears, it says, a word from the Lord, that the Lord speaks to him in a personal way. 
And, and listen, let me just say, sometimes those are the occasions when we are the most attentive to really hearing a word from the Lord. Maybe it's at the death of a loved one when we are in a tremendous amount of grief because someone that was such an important part of our life through death or separation circumstantially, something that was such a huge part of our life has now been taken out of our life and like Moses' death, that was outside of Joshua's control. It was outside of his control. And in the midst of that, sometimes we become so much more tender and awakened. Lord, I need to hear something from you because this is a huge loss. And this is a major transition. And this is a very difficult time and a time of, you know, grief or disappointment or, or realizing, man, that that's old season is gone and this is a new season now. And they couldn't stay in the old season. It was time for a new season. And God now is going to speak to Joshua at this critical hour. But look, sometimes those are the times when we hear the most timely words from the Lord. And some of those occasions when it's really hard or there's a transitional point, the Lord really has our attention and we really get a chance to hear what he wants to say to us. So it's at that point it came to pass the Lord spoke to Joshua saying to him, verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. That's called clarity, right? <laughs> Just in case you didn't recognize that. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. So again, there's both compassion in the heart of God, but there's also something constructive in how to deal with his grief and the transition. He says, listen, you've grieved. And listen, there's a time to mourn. And there is a time to grieve. It's biblical. It's necessary. God's created tear ducts and God has given us emotions. We're creating his image and likeness. And whether it be death or loss of someone or a transition of a leader or any of these kind of type of factors that could put us in the same spot, there's a time to mourn. And that's appropriate and necessary and healthy. But then there's also a time to move on. And he says, Joshua, Moses is dead. It's happened, Joshua. You've mourned, you've grieved, I understand. But now he says, now get up and go over the Jordan. Get up and get going. And see, this is important. We need to mourn, but there also comes a time where after we have mourned, we also need to begin to move on and to adjust to the new normal. And that's kind of what it's like, isn't it? You know, I've had some people that I loved or were close to me in my life that were a part of my life, relatives or individuals. And, and when they die, that's, isn't that kind of what it's like? It's like a new normal. You have to keep living on because your time's not done. You have to adjust to a new normal, but you have to be able to get up and get going again and to get going as you're adjusting to the new normal. And so he says, Joshua, yes, this was hard. Moses, my servant is dead. But here's what I want you to do now. You need to get up, arise. Don't sit there and let this overwhelm you. Go over this Jordan. My plan, my work must continue on. Continue moving forward. Get active again, he says. Get back engaged in what your responsibility is. Take these people to the land which I am giving them. And he says, verse 3, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses from the wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river the river Euphrates and all the land of the Hittites to the great sea that'd be the Mediterranean toward the going down of the sun 
shall be your territory. So again, God reminds him that he wants to give them this land. Again, you'll see this emphasized throughout chapter one. I have given it to them. I am giving it to them. This land is a gift. Here's what I want you to draw your attention to. If you were to map out verse four, the, the area geographically that's described there uh, of the land that God was giving to the people, basically it's a reference to down south in the area of the, the wilderness of Sinai all the way up as far as the Lebanese mountains from the Mediterranean Sea over the Euphrates uh, River there that's being referred to Consider, you know, countering in portions even what we consider today modern-day Iraq and so forth. This is an area God wants to give them and said he is going to give them of about 300,000 square miles. It's a lot of land. Israel at their zenith, when they were conquering territories, at their zenith, they only took possession of about one-tenth of all that God promised to them, about 30,000 square miles if you look at the size of Israel today what it is uh, I don't think today it'd go over real well if they went marching over to you know some of their uh, neighbors next door and said well actually here God we we changed our mind God said this real estate belongs to us too and they don't have enough trouble keeping the the land that they're in right now occupying but but it's just such a sad testimony to realize God wanted to give them way 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 more and they shrunk back from God's best. They shrunk back from God's ideal. God would have done so much more. God wanted to give them so much more, and yet they never occupied it. it occupied about one-tenth of all that God had intended for them and wanted to, to allow them to experience. But I think, again, as we think of that in relation to the Spirit-filled life and the promised life in the Spirit, sadly, that's what a lot of God's people do even as Christians. They enter into about maybe 10% of all the Christian life is really intended to be. You know, they, you know, you first get saved and, and typically, you know, it's one of these things. You first get saved and all of a sudden maybe there's that zeal and the passion. And so in the first, you know, year or two, you are taking territory like mad and you're claiming territory and you knock out about 10% already. And then something happens. You hit this bump in the road or apathy or this or that. And all of a sudden something happens where the, the Christian just kind of, well, that, this, this is good enough. I mean, this, this is kind of good. I mean, we'll let the really zealous Christians keep pressing forward. I mean, I'm kind of content with this. This is, this is good. This is way more than I ever imagined. Yeah, but it's not all God's imagined for you. God is way more. God is way better. God has way more incredible things. And, and so sad that as Christians sometimes we forsake so much more victory over sin that God could give to us. We settle for less of how much God would use us and could use us by the power of His Spirit and things that we could conquer and enemies that we think we could never overcome that God says, yes, you can. And walls and barriers that exist that we just eventually say, ah, oh, those walls are just too big and too high. They'll never come down. And we just turn around and walk away instead of having a Jericho experience where the Lord brings down walls that we never thought could possibly bring down. And such a sad thing if as Christians we miss experiencing all of God has or so often perhaps even as the church we have shrunk back and aren't experiencing the highest ideal of what we should be as God's people or as the church because of our own negligence not God's powers weak but our own negligence our lack of faith our apathy our laziness our worldliness our tendency to just 
settle into you know being apathetic where where we're at in our spiritual life or half-hearted it's a tragedy but again you see the part of the the connection if i can draw your attention to verse three as god speaks to them about taking all this land notice he says every place the sole of your foot will tread upon i notice the terminology past tense have given you he doesn't say i will give it to you god says i already have given it to you those 300,000 square miles god says i have already given it to you it's promised it's yours it's a gift and God says, everywhere, however, you put the sole of your foot, that I've already given to you. So what God's saying is, look, I've given you all this, but you have to claim it. You have to go in and take possession of it. And what this is reminding us here is, and we'll see this in the book of Joshua, God wants to bless them with this incredible gift and this incredible experience, a blessed experience. And the land was given already in God's determination, but victory was not automatic. The land was given, but victory was not automatic. It wasn't just automatic victory and without, that is, cooperative human participation. They needed to participate. There was steps of faith that needed to be taken. They needed to fight battles and engage and and take steps of obedience and, and participate in human responsibility. It would be a progressive process, but they had to partake and participate in acquiring all that God intended for them or they wouldn't experience it. It's only what they would participate in yielding to and obeying God and following God and taking steps of faith. It's only through their participation in human cooperation that they would experience all that God had already given to them. It was there for the taking, but they had to participate in levels of human responsibility. We'll see that they had to fight battles and take steps of faith and trust God's power. Without that, they would acquire nothing that's why they only acquired 10 percent and again this is a picture of the spiritual life because again victory is available to us power is available to us spiritual experience is available to us but it's not automatic there's a cooperative relationship that has to happen between us and the lord we have to believe the promises of god and act upon them We have to take steps of faith. We have to be willing to to walk in obedience and to experience things. Nothing to me is more of a tragedy when sometimes I'll hear Christians fall into, woe is me, and I don't understand why I can't get victory over this and that, and and I'm struggling with sin and this and that. Are you reading your Bible? No. Are you praying? Uh, Well, no, 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 not really. Are you surrounding yourself with accountability so that people can keep you on your toes, that you're, you're taking steps of obedience? Are you, are, are you obeying what God's... Well, well, no, no. Well, do you see what the Bible says in relation to that? Yeah, are you, are you going to do that? Well, yeah, I'm going to do that. And you talk to them three days later and they've already disregarded it. Well, of course there's never going to be victory. There's, there's, there's participation that needs to happen. We have to walk in faith. We have to take steps progressively towards obedience and engage in the battles and when we do that the power of god meets us because the promise of god assures us if you do your part god will overwhelmingly do his part to make your step of faith your act of obedience successful in the victory over the sin or experiencing god's blessing or god's best but there's this participation where again we have to walk those things out in steps of human responsibility and here god says everywhere you tread i've already given it to you but if they walked nowhere and stood still 
they would forfeit all of God's bless, uh, blessings and all of God's best for them. Verse 5, God wants to assure now Joshua, again, because of the, the tendency of concern in his heart, he says to him, no man, Joshua, shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. So take notice, God assures Joshua, Joshua, listen, I know there are concerns because you know there are enemies in that land. I know there will be things and people and people groups that will resist you. But he says, Joshua, absolutely no form of resistance can succeed against you. It, it will come against you and there will. They will fight enemies and there will be resistance and there will be battles. That, that, that's a part of, again, the spiritual life. That's why the, the book of Joshua and the promised land is not a picture of heaven. Old hymnology sometimes acts like the Canaan land is a picture of heaven. Well, listen, in the Canaan land, there are battles to be fought. They have some defeats and some victories. There are struggles with sin. There are mistakes. I hope none of that exists in heaven. <laughs> but that is a part of the back and forth experience of trying to walk in the spirit and wrestling with the flesh. That's a picture of the spiritual life. So Joshua knows there are going to be forms of resistance and God says, listen, but none of that resistance will be able to stand before you. It, it won't succeed against you. It'll come against you, but it won't succeed against you. The reason why, because Joshua would be so great. No, he says, because as I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you and see with God, that's a majority. One person with God is a majority. It didn't matter how big the enemy was or how high the walls were or how strong the resistance was. He says, just like I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you. He's saying, Joshua, look what he says there. I will not leave you or forsake you. Joshua, I never abandoned Moses and I was with Moses and I'm not a God of partiality. So if I was with Moses, with my power and my presence, I'll do the exact same for you. And boy, isn't it a wonderful thing to be able to look sometimes at the way God's worked in someone else's life and to realize if God did that for her, if God did that for him, I look at it this way, God, you have to do that for me because <laughs> if not, you're playing favorites and you're not allowed to do that because the Bible that I read and you wrote, it says that God shows personal favoritism to no man and that he doesn't change, that he's the same yesterday, today and forever. So Lord, as you were with that person, I, I need you to be with me in my resistance, in my challenges. And what a beautiful promise from the Lord to Joshua, who's concerned, I will not leave you nor forsake you. Again, he's just gone through a time of loss. He's lost his relationship with Moses. He's concerned of what if he's by himself? How will he handle it? And he says, I'll be with you. And not just why be with you. He says, I assure you, I will never leave you. In other words, you're saying, I'm not going to depart from you. Uh, there's never going to be a time when I step away or take a break or a vacation. And he says, and I will not forsake you. And the word forsake implies what? Abandonment. It's a strong word to abandon. He says, I won't leave you. I won't depart from you and I won't forsake or abandon you. And let me just say tonight, that's a really good encouragement because probably to some extent, a lot of us here in this room this evening, we've experienced times where somebody, whether it was through death and outside of our control, they departed from us and, and they were no longer able to be with us and they were a huge part of a support system of our life, their presence, and it's not there anymore. And that's scary to go on without that. Or there have been times in our lives where people have just departed from us in friendships or relationships or we've been maybe even worse, abandoned very painfully by someone. Someone abandoned us. 
They forsook us. And we're trying to figure out how to get our bearings. And we thought maybe they said they would never do that, but they did anyway. I'll be there with you, but they abandoned you. And that's hard. But the Lord says, listen, but I'll never do that. I'll never abandon you. I'll never forsake you. My presence will be with you. And if God is for us, the Bible says, who can be against us? Resistance will come. But it's the presence of the Lord and his never departing from us or forsaking us that helps us to be successful. He says, verse 6 to Joshua, you be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give to them. So we're going to see a few times here, verse 6, you notice it again, verse 7, again in verse 9, where God repeatedly says to Joshua this statement, be strong and of good courage. Be strong and of good courage. Now, I have to think, again, there is no wasted word in the Bible, God never says anything in waste words. So when the Bible says something, God says for meaning, and this is a direct word from the Lord. This is the Lord speaking to Joshua. And three times he reiterates in a brief little few sentence exchange as he's speaking a personal word to this concerned man's heart in a difficult hour of his life. Joshua, you be strong and of good courage. That seems to indicate that Joshua was feeling weak And he was fearful because of what he was facing at that hour in his life. And it was a lot he was facing. He was under a heavy load. He he had real uncertainties about his future. How's all this going to pan out? What's this going to go like? Remember, he was Moses' aide. He saw how these people treated Moses for 40 years. (laughs) And he's thinking, I had to help Moses and I was second command. Now all the buck stops with me. And, and he's thinking, How, there's a lot of uncertainty in his future. What's going to happen? How's it going to go? How am I going to handle? What's it going to be like? And again, when we're in those times, what happens? We, we start to feel deflated, right? There are times in our life where we feel very weakened. And Lord, I just, I don't know if I have the strength for this. I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle this. This is, this is a new thing. This, I've never faced this before. I've never entered into something. like This is a new transition, a new season. I feel very weak, and, and I don't know if I can handle it. And Lord, I, quite frankly, I'm kind of scared. I'm nervous. I, I don't know how to handle this. I'm fearful. And, and it's in those moments that the Lord says, you be strong. Not in his own strength, but why does God say he can be strong? Because he says, I'll be with you. I'm with you. We don't draw our strength from ourselves or self-resolve. We draw our strength from just the awareness, the Lord's with me, and he will strengthen me. He will give me strength I don't have. Isaiah says that God gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases their strength. Wait on the Lord, and we renew our strength, the Bible says. Uh, Again, the word wait there literally means to to intertwine. That is, when we intertwine our life with the Lord, strength comes from that, because our strength comes from him. And again, God gives power to the weak. God doesn't give power to the strong because the strong think they don't need no power, right? That's why God uses the weak things of the world. Sometimes God doesn't use certain people because they're too strong. And God says, you're too strong. That's the problem. You think you can do it on your own or you'll keep getting in the way because you're too strong. So sometimes God has to weaken us to get us to a place where we, Lord, I need your strength. Now, don't worry. You be strong. I'll strengthen you. And don't you be afraid. I know that you, you're concerned because you don't see how you could do it or how you can handle it. But he says, you take courage. Again, courage why? Courage because the God is with you. 
His presence is with you. That's what gives us courage to know that the Lord is with us. So he says, Joshua, you be strong. You shall divide this land as an inheritance, which I swore to give to their fathers. In other words, Joshua, I'm going to do my thing. You take heart. You be encouraged. I'm going to do this and I'm going to be with you and do it through your life. He says to him, verse 7, only be strong again and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. So notice here, what is the key to being able in many ways to, to draw strength and to draw courage? What does God take him right to? God says, my presence will be with you. And he says, but my word is with you as well now. And Joshua will be my word that directs you and strengthens you and gives you the courage to face your enemies and, and tells you how to handle each battle and navigate things. He says, let my word be the thing that guides you. Observe to do according to all that is written in the law, which Moses, my servant, commanded to you as, as Moses gave the word of God. Again, Joshua, there's going to be no more pillar of cloud, no more pillar of fire. Now, Joshua, my word. You have, a, you have my word now and let my word be the lamp for your feet and the light to your path. It will give you strength. It will give you guidance if you observe it. He says, don't turn to the right hand or to the left. The other is don't go down some other path. Don't think, well, you know, I don't know. God's saying to do it this way, but I don't know. Logic says I should turn over here to the right and take that route instead. And God says, look, don't do that. He says, be careful of that. Don't allow yourself... To do that, he says, you stay on track with God's word and God's design and God's way of life. And he says, that will help you. Look what he says in verse six. If you don't turn to the right or the left, that will help you prosper wherever you go. So Joshua, whatever the situation is going to be, how do we fight this particular battle as a military general? You know, how do I deal with these issues with the people here? Or how do I make this decision? Or how do I handle this new role that I'm very concerned with? And I've never done this before. This is a new season. He says, Joshua, do you want to prosper wherever you're at, whatever the situation is? He says, don't turn to the right. Don't go with your own ideas over to the right. Don't get drawn to the left with other people's advice and ideas. He says, you follow the word of God. You let the word of God be the source of your guidance. It will help you to prosper and succeed wherever you go. He says in verse 8, this book of the law, again, at this point now, a, a portion of the scripture has been assembled and given in a sense. This book of the law, notice, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you, again, notice, may observe to do according to all that is written in it. Again, the, the exhortation here to Joshua that the word of God needed to be assimilated into his life as a man. He says, don't let it depart from your mouth and meditate upon it day and night. So the idea here is God is telling Joshua, listen, Joshua, I want you to succeed. I want you to prosper. I want you to do well. So you need to continually, he said, have my word in your mind day and night he says meditate upon it is, let it be in your thoughts be pondering my word in such a way whereby it's becoming assimilated into your inner man 
where, where you have a part of the word of God and, and you, you're thinking upon it. It's the idea of meditating. It's where we get the concept you know, to muse over something, to mutter is literally the word, kind of just talking it through, thinking it over. It's the same analogy, and sometimes the terminology used to refer to the word meditate in the Bible is the idea from a farming perspective of chewing the cud like cows do, where they have multiple stomach chambers, and they ingest something, and they chew it a little bit, and then they swallow it down, and it goes into the first stomach chamber, and then they regurgitate it, they bring it back up, and they... They chew it on it a little bit more. That's called chewing the cud. And they, they chew it a second time and they get a little more nutrients out of it. And then they swallow it down into the next chamber. And then they bring it back up again. And they chew the cud a little bit more. And the idea is, is the continual bringing it up and digesting it. Bringing it up and digesting it is to draw as much absolute possible nutrients out of what you have partaken of as possible. And the Bible says this is what we're to do. Not just skim the word of God. But he said, meditate upon the word of God. Ponder it. Think it through day and night. We read a portion. Maybe we take a phrase. We take a verse. And we just, we just keep thinking it through. Meditating upon it. Letting it become a part of our inner being. Be something that the Lord can give light and revelation to as we think it through. He says, and don't let it depart from your mouth. The idea is talk it over. Talk it over with the Lord. Think it through. Let it be something that you're talking about. The word of God in your conversation as a leader, he was to be speaking the word of God to others that it wouldn't depart from his mouth. And he says, Joshua, if this is the way you live your life as a man and this is the way that you lead where the word of God is the centrality of your life, he says, this will help you to be able, he says, to then obey the word of God, to do what it says, what's written, and you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. Again, you notice there, God's goal, observing what is written, not just studying what is written, observing it. The word of God does no good if we never act upon it, if we don't observe it. It doesn't bring the blessed success and prosperity that God wants to give to us. Again, I how do I live a successful life? I want to prosper in what I do in my life. Well, God says, let my word be at the center of your being. Let it govern your thoughts. Let it direct your words and, and, and obey what it says. And you will experience success in your life endeavors. And, and you will prosper in what you put your hand to in the things that you do. Now, listen, for them, that was literal prosperity, the land flourishing. We need to be careful when we read the word prosper and succeed. Not that God doesn't want us to prosper and succeed, but we have to be careful in our Western mindset that we don't define prospering and success the way that the world does, which is strictly by one word, which is affluence. Because if affluence, okay, was the only characteristic, material affluence and wealth was the only criterion for what success and prosperity truly is, then Jesus was a failure. And Paul the Apostle was a failure. And Peter was an absolute failure. So we have to be careful when we talk about what it means to be successful, what it means to prosper. L listen, I would much rather have a successful family than have success that gives me a great fortune. I wouldn't mind the fortune. Help with the family, right? <laughs> but I would much rather have a successful family and know that I have a successful marriage 
or I was successful in raising godly offspring that grew up to love and know and serve the Lord. I, I would much rather prosper in my endeavors to love people and just be a servant and devote myself to the things that matter, that are eternal. And to say, yeah, I, I prospered in those things that I did for the Lord, the labors I did for the Lord. And it may not look like success or prosperity to the world or to the world standard, but I, I'm not measuring my life by the world standard. We're not supposed to measure our life by the world standard. I'd rather have success and victory over sin. Oh, yeah, great. You have this and that and this and that, but you're also in bondage to pornography. You're also in bondage to bitterness. You're an alcoholic. Your marriage is a mess. If you want to keep your success, keep it. I'll keep mine. <laughs> there are different types of success. I'd rather have victory over sin and a clear conscience and know I'm right with the Lord and have peace and joy and, and be experiencing the things that God's intended in, in the ultimate incredible experience of a spirit-filled life. I would much rather have success and prosperity in that. And I think any of us who are wise ought to recognize and long for the same thing. And that's available to us equally because we all have a copy of this at our disposal. This book. This book that is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. It says so that the man or woman of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work how to do marriage how to parent how to handle our money how to handle life issues how to be a good employee how to make decisions how to follow god's will how to do life god's way so that we can prosper and we can have a successful life that's enjoyable well i expire time let's let's pray and unfortunately i want to finish the first chapter but let, let's just pray and turn our hearts in worship next week we'll pick up the pace a little bit we don't have to do as much introductory thoughts but let's stand let's let's pray together and just trust